Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsession will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dark out for a it's Jackie Cation. Welcome to the Dork Forest. You remember the Dork Forest. We're a podcast. Me and you. You know the websites, JackieCation.com, DorkForest.com, TheDorkForest.com. It's December 22nd, uh, 2015, you guys. So if you live in California, I might be able to fulfill an order if you order from JackieCation.com. Uh, if you live in California is what I think. Or maybe you celebrate Armenian Christmas on January 6th. Or maybe you just want this shirt uh, in your life. But uh, know in your hearts that uh, if you order today, it's probably not going to get to you by the 25th, unless you live like a minute away from me. Uh, okay, the credits. Patrick Brady's going to fix this audio. Mike Rickberg, who composed and sang that song that you just heard, he is going to sing again lyrics that he wrote to the Mexican hat dance. And Vilmos, he fixes my website, JackieCation.com. How about this? If you want to order things, you can order from JackieCation.com. You can get CDs and DVDs and T-shirts and a hoodie. And all the T-shirts are made here in America, union-made, so they run a little big because they're made by Americans. And shipping, I believe, is included with all of that stuff. You can get combos of CDs in the DVD. And... The hoodies, I have some in stock. I am out of double X, weirdly enough. Now, you can use the Amazon banner if you want to support the show this month. It's on the main page. It's white on the right-hand side. It says support the show, shop Amazon. It's a portal into Amazon. It doesn't add anything to your order, but when you order through that portal, Dork Forest gets a kickback, and I thank you for it. It is still December, so if you were thinking of donating to the Dork Forest, do not. Donate to a food bank. Find a food bank in your local neighborhood or town or city or state or province or wherever you live. To do that, you know the Internet. You can Google the name of the town that you live in and the words food bank and you will find them. On JackieCation.com, there's a lot of things going on. You can watch videos of my stand-up. You can also uh, see my schedule. In January, I'm all over the place. I'm at Acme in Minneapolis. The first week, I am in Tacoma, Washington. The second week, I'm doing Sketchfest in San Francisco the third weekend. I'm in Seattle the fourth weekend. And also that weekend, I'm coming back to L.A. to do a live Dork Forest at the Riot Fest in Los Angeles. So come and see me do stand-up comedy. Check for details at JackieCation.com. But let's get into the show, you guys. Hey, it's Jackie Cation. I am in my living room with a fan favorite, uh, Dork Luminary, Robert Hurt. Remember from the previous episode of The Dork Forest? Welcome back to the show, Robert Hurt. Jackie, it is it always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me back. Super fun. Last year we learned about, uh, about, um, uh, the, your job at, at, at working with the Spitzer telescope and, uh, doing essentially the key, the mapping key color there was a there was a color visualization. Is that what right? The right. Words? You know, data visualization, yeah. image visualization. You know, all the visual sides of science communication for uh, coming for from the Spitzer. Uh, from Spitzer specifically coming. at that one at that time we were talking. Yes, yes. And it's a great episode. It was one of the fan favorites. By the way, you we'll made go the top back and ten. If you haven't heard it, that's right. Robert Hurt, by the way, is at Astro Rob on Twitter and Astronomy Viz V I Z dot WordPress for your blog and Astro. 
astropics.cool for, for JPL Spitzer pictures, right? For, for all of the NASA missions, for oh, the European Southern Observatory, astropics.cool is this one sort of catch-all site where we're trying to pull in all of the the, the greatest oh, all the cool uh, pictures imagery from all of the telescope all the key telescopes around the world. All right. We still have a few that we're missing, but it's it's a it's an awesome place to start if you're really looking for the best in uh, astronomy uh, imagery. Now, what I have, but we've brought you here today so that we cannot speak of science. We must speak of science fiction, uh, and yes. we must well, speak of spaceships. Say, you can't speak science fiction without first speaking science. <laughs> that's that's. Uh, <laughs> yes, isn't it true? It's so true. So, but you you enjoy the spaceships of many a, many a program and movie that has been on the television with the moving pictures. I do, I do, because yes, once you move past my general science dorkdom, I'd say because uh, you're an astrophysicist as I, well as uh, an artist yeah, and I'm a an astrophysicist and an artist, right? Yeah, I, I've done all this. I you know I started as the artist and the astrophysicist, but if you go back before the art and before the astrophysics. You got to my, probably my core geekdom, which anyone who's ever been to my place, which includes you guys, yes, uh, knows is, is, is spaceships. Andy Ashcraft is silently watching uh, this recording of the Dork Forest because Robert Hurd is one of his oldest friends, and he stares, <laughs> stares. He will stare politely at us and Andy, possibly laugh. Andy will be there to correct me if I uh, <laughs> if I make a, a, an erroneous statement. Swooping in to say, "Oh my God!" <laughs> anyway, but so, what was the first spaceship you remember from from uh, television and or movies? I'd say because of my <clears throat> age, uh, the first spaceship <laughs> that I truly yes. remember, and of course the one that, that, that has stuck with me all these years, is of course the USS Enterprise. Oh, not the first no one. bloody A, B, C, or D, no. as, as the engineer uh, Scott uh, commented once on Star Trek: Next Generation. Just that <laughs> original original series Enterprise was sort of my, some of my you know my earliest memories is, goes back to that ship. It was a thing of beauty. I, I had models that my dad made me models. They were destroyed, made more models. They were destroyed. <laughs> you know, it's, there has always been like multiple enterprises in my life. Wow. And what was he making the models out of? Like, like the you would just buy kits. model kits yeah, and the then AMT. you would play with them and then they would get destroyed. Yes. And then another one would be made and then, and then more glue would be purchased. Right. As Got we it. learned that original enterprise with those little nacelles and those tiny little, little pylons, that's not a structurally sound way of attaching four uh, drives to your <laughs> secondary hull. We, we, really? We've proven that repeatedly. We've proven that repeatedly that that is not a way to... So what do we what do we know about that ship? Do we know that... Is that ship feasible? Is that ship something... I mean, it would be a terrible idea, the warp. Oh, well, I mean, that ship is still uh, functions on, uh, uh, you know... Uh, uh, <clears throat> magic, uh, you know. Oh, okay. The, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the Enterprise certainly falls into the realm of, you know, warp drive. That's the magical physics that we don't know how to do yet. Oh, we'd love to come up with sure. it someday, but you know, but. Like teleporting. But it was, but it was a really intriguing ship for its time and its design because the idea to have a, a, a starship that had these two little engines that weren't really like thrust coming out of it. The idea is those two engines made a warp field and that this thing actually travels faster than light because of some you know magical gravitational field made around it and that those engines made it but they didn't like spew you know exhaust out in the process right and uh, or create radiation that created everyone to die right and and uh, the the fact that it wasn't well were there uh, episodes that just explained the warp drive in uh, magical terms they they Explain around it. I mean, yeah. there's always the a little bit of just uh, referencing it, but it's never really explained because you know 
Dilithium Magic. crystals are clearly involved, Di- right? Dilithium crystals are clearly involved. Matter and antimatter intermix is oh, involved. Oh, that's right. They, they, uh, they were forward-looking enough to know that, you know, the most efficient way of getting energy out of uh, a container of fuel is if half the fuel is matter and half is antimatter. And you mix right. it and you get lots of energy out. So they were actually very cutting-edge physics on that, uh, at least for the source of their power. And yeah. Then this magical dilithium crystal did something or other to make that maybe stabilize work it or and something. Stabilize yeah. it, and, and, well, and then then you pump it into the engines, and you get warp out of it. So and you get warp. Yeah, that's awesome. And you also get really cool. And I have a quick one, quick question that I've always thought about about different spaceships forever, which is why running lights. I mean, is it just to, so that everyone else on the on the highway knows that you're you're there? Well, you know, it's like you're flying down. If you happen to see this other ship that's like you know a light year away, if it doesn't have running lights, how will you ever? You know? might bump into it. Yes, you might. You know, are I you think the running lane? lights are more like when it's in Earth orbit and you're near the space office complex and right. the little shuttle pods going around, and you happen to be in the shadow of the Earth. Right. Then actually having running lights would help you if right. your radar isn't working and all of the other technological things that you'd be using to navigate around, you'd still be able to see, oh yeah, yeah, I don't want to bump into that. Oh, like, like looking, like looking out the helicarrier and you're like head, head toward the water. Yeah, exactly. When Nick Fury right. was, says you know, that during one of the Sometimes your adventures. instruments fail you and you just gotta, uh, you gotta look like, out a window. Yeah, you gotta and look, just and go, oh, And yeah. a flashy light, man, in the dark, a flashy <laughs> light. That's, that's all that you're gonna see. That's it. Maybe it'll come up. Yeah, so. exactly. All right. So what, um, so it, so that's, that's the first and foremost, probably. So that, that's the first in my life, but, right. but, but to really stretch it back, right? You, th- there's been an actually really interesting evolution of, of, of spaceships through, you know, the history of science fiction. Now I, my, I'm going to talk mostly like, like film and TV. Okay. Uh, and not yeah, yeah. so much gaming. There's a whole other, branch on, on gaming stuff, but you know, <clears throat> Warhammer stuff is just butt ugly, so I'm not going to talk right. about that. But, you <laughs> you know, don't like the like... aesthetics. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. And are they out in space? I didn't think Warhammer was out in oh, space. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. There's whole Warhammer giant oh, right, monstrous right. ships that, that uh, you know, you can download these ship charts where people have gone through like the whole history of science fiction and tried to put like like size comparisons of everything. And oh, right. It's always the gaming stuff is the stupidly large stuff that makes no sense at all. So Oh, it's like I, an anime convention and someone's carrying the giantest sword in the whole wide world. Exactly. Like, are you exactly. supposed to fight with that? I know I get that it looks really, really cool. Gamers have some sort of inadequacy thing. It always has to be like <laughs> a big sword, a big, a big ship. Sure. Who doesn't like a large... Anyway. But if you go back... but So if you look at the, the whole evolution of like the sci-fi... Sp- spaceship starship right you know you yeah. go back you know at the the turn of the century right when we had the first men on the moon or i forget the french title for it but right you know that was back basically projectiles you, you like fire things out of cannons oh right it looked know. more like a bullet it looked more like a bullet or or uh the, the movie things to come again very very early 1930-ish something uh, uh right uh, sci-fi right you know giant cannons that blasted things because right. we hadn't gotten to the idea of like putting engines on our stuff yet right it was it, it was all being propelled all being okay propelled. Right. Then you get into like the, the, the 30s and 40s, and then, then it was all like the serials, Flash, uh, Gordon, oh, Flash Gordon. And, and Buck Rogers. And then those was were Buck like the spark driven ships, right? Those were like, they'd make these little, little, little model sleds hung on, on wires, and they'd have sparklers in the back that would shoot smoke and sparks. Oh, and, okay. and they would drag those around the set, and they were, uh, um, uh, I, I was, I was digging for like a, a design sense of what characterized those ships, and, you know, I, I, I'm actually, 
that was whatever they could build roughly a set shape for. And so okay. it's kind of like roughly like cylindrical. So they look like cars or? They look like cars. Well, well, you know, if you actually run it across uh, to the, the, uh, the 1970s in the movie Flesh Gordon, that was the parody of all the Flesh Gordon, they really took that shape to its ultimate conclusion to its, its Flesh ultimate... Gordon? Was it a little bit of possibly a dick joke? It was phallic. And, okay. Yes, there you it go. was, it sure. was, let's face it, they, that's what they are. Little flying penises, penises with sure. sparks coming out. Because, <laughs> Which you know. is actually how penises work. Uh, yeah, kids, I mean, if you're listening, that's, that's how penises work. They're actually, they have sparklers coming out of them. It's one of the greatest things in the world. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you, you better put the explicit tag on this podcast. Exactly. For your, your innocent uh, yes. It's all right. But, Nobody's um, listening. But after that, right, <laughs> we get through a period, then you know, we have the World War II, then we import all the German scientists over after World War II, and we have Werner von Braun, who comes, you know, and, and worked on the V2 program, but then comes over and... and That's right. We did a, a, I did a, a thing just entirely about actual rockets with a woman who goes by at Vintage Space. Mm. And uh, and she was... I had forgotten what regular real rockets that the, all the... Essentially, they were, they were Nazi scientists that we split them up with the Soviet Union or right. something, right? right? And we got that guy Werner... Yeah. Werner, whatever. Werner von Braun. Right. And so he had, they were very phallic. Very phallic, and but super also very tall. smooth and, and, oh. and curvy and voluptuous. I mean, you know, you look at the V2, and if you forget for a moment about it being a, you know, weapon of mass destruction. Of, okay. Of bomb, you know, this beautiful, elegant, simple, clean lines with fins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah, you know, fins. that design aesthetic came as, you know, he was working in the U.S. and they were really uh, trying to project the future of the space program. Mm-hmm. And this idea of this smooth, clean line future really, really took hold. And so yeah. you've got like the generation of movies of like in the 50s of Destination Moon and Rocket Ship XM that, um, and she can tell yeah, yeah. by the way, I, I, I made notes for this. So I'm yeah, sure it's I get really, the years right. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. remember the movies. I can never remember the years. So Fair I, enough. I did a little research just to make sure I got the, those numbers Everybody, right. Everybody, uh, otherwise, it's just people shouting at their iPods because they have access to their computers. Exactly. So we appreciate it. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Know. And so there is this, this, that was that beautiful retro future of clean, smooth lines. And this is kind of a continuation of the Buck Rogers trend. You yeah, know, yeah. And, and fins and everything, too. Fins and aerodynamic and smooth and everything. But it was also in the 50s, we got our first new, like completely new, like species of spaceship, right? And what? this dates back to uh, 1947. Uh, a pilot, uh, let's see, pilot by the name, oh, what was this guy's name? Uh, I was trying to remember his numbers. Right. Yes, yes. Kenneth Arnold was a pilot who was flying near Mount Rainier and reported seeing a formation of saucer-shaped objects skipping along like they were skipping along, like you might skip like a saucer skipping, off the water. Like, like throwing stones. Right, like throwing stones, but okay. like in a saucer shape. And this report captured the imagination, and that was the genesis of flying saucers. After that report, and it getting all this press, all of a sudden, flying saucers were seen everywhere. And, of course, that was 1947, so by the 1950s, flying saucers worked their way into all the popular media. They were real. They were real. So they, uh, you know, that's when you started getting movies like Earth versus the Flying Saucers, for one, or... uh, um, (laughs) Uh, uh, the day the Earth stood still, you know, and it's sort of two extremes. Is one, the day the Earth stood still with the one with the giant statue robot guy? Yes, Gort, okay, Gort, uh, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, Robert okay. Wise directed actually. So, you know, so you have Earth versus flying saucers, which is just your cheesy invasion movie with beautiful Ray Harryhausen stop yeah. motion effects, uh, whereas Earth versus flying saucers is a very thoughtful. Uh, uh, 
metaphor for the Cold War and 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 uh, uh, the robot Carter. one, the robot one. Yeah. Yes, it was you know, very serious. One of the the first the, real the day the Earth stood still. Day the Earth stood still. There we still go. stands up today. Okay, and, and I think forget. I've seen most of it. And, and never and forget, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, or we're all screwed. <laughs> Well, Any. note to self. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, spice. <laughs> and so, but, but yeah, so you, flying saucers invaded the, yeah. uh, for a while. And, um, uh, like this island earth and other kind of semi-serious sci-fi movie of aliens. Do you have a favorite flying saucer? Uh, Yes, I do. And that was actually um, also in the 50s, but later in the 50s, the movie Forbidden Planet okay. uh, made another first in history because that was the first time that humans, we were shown to be the pilots of flying saucers. Uh-huh. And uh, again, uh, um, Forbidden Planet, a fantastic movie, a very a thoughtful, very intellectual film. Uh, uh, like the best science fiction is. Like the best science fiction is. You know, the uh, their, their, their flying saucer was the C-57D. Oh, was nice it? Serial number. Excellent. You know, Very nice. Beautiful, elegant, simple. But, you know, when it's, its landing sequence came in, it would like emit this little glowy cylinder of light that it sort of bounced and floated down gently oh, to a landing. Nice. And, you know, a nice uh, triaxial symmetry little landing legs came down. And yeah. Same movie introduces to Robbie the Robot, you know, a famous robot that's you know persisted for years through cinema. Show All right. Later I... in Lost in Space and things. Oh, but, okay. yeah, but that was that was the first time... You know, humans got put into the cockpit of the flying saucer then. And then, okay. then there's a little bit of history of, of, uh, of that going on, you know. Right. But, uh, there, uh, let's see, any other good flying saucer movies? Oh, of course, there's also the famous Plan 9 from Outer Space, you know. And, oh, right. That which thing. The flying saucers Ed. there were actually a, I think a Ravel model kit that came out of a flying saucer and that was their, this sure, symbol that, and hung that on guy the was on a budget, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so. So, yeah, so like, so the 50s basically gave us the, the smooth, clean line ships and the flying saucers. Okay. But the 60s is really, again, the next landmark change, I think, and, 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 oh, oh, Andy's, wait, wait, Andy's we have a call from the uh, peanut gallery. Yes, Andy, would you like to pipe in? Come on in. So, before we leave the 50s, I oh. want to talk about, um, industrial design in the 50s as well, because that's when you also <laughs> saw those sort of sleek lines in cars. And it's because the 50s was the first time that they were able to easily mass produce complex curves. Oh. oh. That is hot. Thank you. <laughs> that but was, that is, but right, that that's is because the cars, you think of the, uh, the really high end cars, all these luxurious complex curves. The jet age. There we go. All right, right. then. So they finally, they and finally so were able to do that. Whatever looks hot in the car is then what Turned looks into hot. A spaceship. That, that's the thing that looks stylish and future. We Did always, that happen in the sixties too? So in the sixties, oh. really what happens is the, uh, uh, the movie, I think that sort of changed everything in design sets so on a whole new path. Was it was the antithesis of the small, uh, the clean line smooth design, and that was two thousand and one. Did that come out in the sixties? That came out in the sixties, nineteen sixty-seven, I think. Sixty-eight. Was that before or after Star Trek? That was actually the year after Star Trek. Okay. So Star Trek predated, and Star Trek still had 
know, the Enterprise, very smooth, clean line. Oh, it had a flying saucer with a couple of... Right. So Star Trek was kind of this weird little hybrid because, you know, there's that that tradition of the flying saucer. Yeah. But they really wanted this design to be like more of a a, a starship and this idea of there would be a warp engine and this whole other thing. So they sort of split the difference. You got the flying saucer in front, but then they attached it to a much larger... giant exhaust things, but that didn't actually give exhaust, as we already discussed. But they look like giant sort of exhaust tubes right. coming out of the back of a fifties car. And then if the you other, thought about it, and the other striking thing, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It had a little bit of that 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 kind of high end like fins on the back of the car fins feel and to it, yeah, yeah. And uh, but you know, absolute, you have to pay reference to, to uh, Matt Jeffries, who's the designer of okay. the Enterprise, and you know, just the the early sketches he went through and all the permutations that that finally led to this dual nacelle design, and the fact that 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 has propagated forward through the whole history of Star Trek ever since is just one of the most fundamental like design elements that yeah. like, we've never it left. Really, it's and we, stuck. We, we continue to play with variants on that uh, that theme over and over again. Right. But, but yeah, so you sort of had Star Trek fitting in that, that, that smooth, clean line like you know, the Klingon ship, again, very smooth lines to it. Was it a Warbird? Uh, the, uh, no, the Warbird was the... the a anyway, newer the, the, Star uh, Trek? The, uh, the, the Romulans. Oh, okay. By the Warbirds. Okay. And, but then the Romulan ship also, which, again, had a very smooth, clean simple geometry to it beautiful bird of prey painted on the bottom but again yeah. that, that, that all this is still that era of smoothness right right in the midst of all this you have uh Hubert pairing up with Arthur C. Clarke to tell like a sort of a nitty-gritty science fiction story but rooted in reality and of course one of the major revelations they had in terms of design there was that if you're in space you don't have atmosphere you don't have to worry about drag or friction or smooth or streamline. Oh. None of that matters, right? If you're okay. In space. So, 2001 really introduced us to the idea of the the the, the complex, weird, unwieldy, completely non aerodynamic structure. What did it look like? I've never well, seen 2001, which of course is uh, oh, well. something not to be said out loud. I'm not going to be whatever. the film critic who harangues you for it. The, <laughs> but uh, just uh, think of the great day when I do get to see it. Yes, that's true. what we could do. We could look forward to that day. Well, I mean, 2001 <laughs> actually gave us a whole bunch of things. They gave us a, a circular space station that was only partially constructed that rotated. Oh, to let The centrifugal force give you gravity. I mean, the same things that came from you know the Werner von Braun tradition, my mm-hmm. of space ideas in the the 50s that you know we were looking at. How would you, you know, if you, you, how would it really, how would you really be able to build something like that? And we know that like, if you've ever ridden the centrifuge at the park, right? It feels like gravity, right? So you could do this. So they showed us the the space station. They gave us the Pan Am space clipper, which was a very streamlined kind of predecessor design to the, uh, the shuttle, which is very prescient. It was the Pan Am space clipper, which wasn't. Which was not very prescient since Pan Am didn't survive right. the, the year 2001. Made a out. hell of a handbag though. Yeah, anyway, but made a keep hell going. Of a handbag, yeah. uh-huh. uh, but then you have like this big spherical clunky thing they used to get from the space station to the, the lunar base. Okay. And then from there they mount the Discovery, the giant, uh, uh, ship that's designed to spend a couple of years taking us out from the moon to Jupiter. Okay. Very long term. It requires some hibernation of the astronauts. And that's a big what is long. It? So the, 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 the Discovery basically Basically, is a, like a big ball on the end, the sphere, okay. and has some docking ports. And there's supposed to be a, a, a centrifuge in the the, the sort of the middle part of that sphere. There's a very long neck with a communications array, and then separating it from a big engine component of that. Oh, okay. it's all very you know. Oh, it looks of, like sort of a bobbing bird. 
Uh, yeah, that sure. thing, that thing that you you balance, and if and uh, if you uh, move it, it can it can dip into the water. Yeah, I think of okay. it like a twenty foot long bobbing bird that's then covered with with bits of pieces of tanks and and aircraft carrier model kit bits that are just oh, okay. glued all over it to give it all this texture, <laughs> fine little neatly oh, okay. details. Oh, cool! And so that was and so that was this idea where we really moved from this beautiful smooth streamline to this that just cram all this little detail. And literally they would do this. They would kit bash. They would buy model kits and just grab like the little turrets and guns and just stick little stuff. So you have texture all over the surface. Okay. And then that really changed like starship design from there on because, you know, all it could sudden, be anything. Now man. it could be anything, not huh. just these smooth lines. Yeah. So that was sort of happened alongside star Trek, but then that really kind of kicked us off this entire new design motif that right. really stuck around, for, uh, you know, ever since. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. um, but yeah, uh, of course, uh, the other one I have to left out, of course, the other thing that we had in TV that actually predated Star Trek by a year was Lost in Space. Oh, yeah. And of course. How did they get there? Yeah, what did their, sorry. What did their sh- ship look like? They flew in a flying saucer. Oh, okay. So they were still, they were still in the flying saucer tradition. Okay. Know, the, and they were just Gilligan's the Island in two. space. They right? were Gilligan's Island in space. Okay. Know, that was silly sci-fi. Star Trek came on to show serious sci-fi. Right. 2001. Got super sci-fi. Serious. Yeah. So already. yeah, you know, it was a, it was, it was just like kind of in my, oh, year after year, you saw this evolution from silly to serious to like art form. Right, right. And, uh, and that kind of kicked things off and, and shifted things in the future. Ooh, what was the spaceship they used in Planet of the Apes? So the Planet of the Apes, they were on a budget, so when Ugh. that spaceship crashed, all we ever got to see was the nose cone sticking out right. of the water. That's and right. it was that it was very smooth. It was very, yeah, pointy, it was but very, it was an very rockety entry. looking. Yeah, it was very yeah. rockety, but also had kind of an atmospheric entry, you know, you want that to be smooth, it had a couple okay. of fins. But but you know, I, as a kid, I always felt stupidly cheated because I wanted to see what the rest of the ship looked like. <laughs> Screw the apes, <laughs> Screw Charlton Heston. <laughs> Show me more of that ship. It looked cool, right. but I only saw a little piece of it. Right, right. Fair enough. Wow. Yeah, they didn't have the budget, I guess, right? They uh, did not have the budget. Fair enough. So, uh, yeah, that 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 was always... And unfortunately, the 70s, after this kind of uh, burst of uh, uh, activity in the 60s and, and TV shows and stuff, 70s was a pretty dry period for spaceships, for, for at least the first half of it, right? Wait. The early seventies, yeah, you know, yeah, not much going on. I mean, we had Silent Running, uh, uh, uh kind of artsy Bruce Dern starring movie. Okay, with, you know, uh, uh, very, it, was, it was it was crazy ecological stuff in space, but beautiful, beautiful ship, the Valley Forge. Again, very, very. Uh, it was Doug Trumbull who worked on Two Thousand One, worked oh, okay. on, on on Silent Running. Uh, and you had basically these were sort of agro ships with these domes that had uh. uh the last forests of Earth left, and they were inside these sort of geodesic domes. Okay. Uh, you know, Buckminster Fuller in the 60s, the geodesic dome was popularized, so they used that design for these domes on the ship. Outside and- of the Wisconsin Dells in Wisconsin, there used to be the Foam House of Tomorrow, uh-huh. and it was a geodesic dome that uh, sadly lasted far too long, and then they eventually <laughs> put it away, and then everyone was like, oh, man, now it would be hilarious. I know. So well, they, they lasted see- just long enough, and then they took it away, and everyone was like, now it's ironic. Where is it? And they're like, well, we destroyed it because it was dumb. And uh, it would have lasted. That thing, would've... They were very durable, right? Yeah. The that was the, uh, 
But, you know, so the Valley Forge was this clump of geodesic domes on one end and a mm-hmm. big framework that connected to an engine in the back. Again, kind of okay. oh, yeah. echoing the, the discovery. Yeah. Completely non-aerodynamic. It was actually Valley Forge out is near a great name of, for a spaceship. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was There's out some... near the orbit of Saturn. And, of course, the, 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 the stupidity of the movie or the stupidity of humanity being depicted is that <laughs> we didn't have room left for forests on Earth, so we just – made these ships to just like a seed banks of like the last bit of uh, right. plant life on our planet that we had pretty much wiped out. And right. Not no one thinking, guess what? This ecosystem doesn't exist anywhere else. Uh, why are we saving just the ecosystem? That's yeah. weird. Okay. Yeah. That is a weird, I, there's, there's a reason I've never heard of that movie. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. And but then, then in that era, also early seventies, we had um, a British show called UFO, or I should say, Say it proper British. UFO. Okay. I always pronounced it. Uh, this was, um, this was done by uh, Jerry Anderson, who was the same guy who brought you, if you remember, the puppet shows, Thunderbirds, oh, Captain okay. Scarlet. That was like the late sixties. Okay. Um, it was his first live action show and it was this delightfully grim, incredibly boring one season <laughs> series about the futuristic 1980s when there's a secret UFO invasion of Earth where the, these UFOs are coming to Earth in the, uh, desolate little places off in the, the, you know, farmlands and kidnapping humans and harvesting their organs and shipping them back to their planet because apparently everyone's well, dying that of got organ co-opted failure. into society even though nobody saw that TV show. Oh yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of Organ harvesting that people think is happening. Yeah, which yeah, yeah that's, is very cutting edge in that thing. That was and there was actually edge. a lot of kind of cutting edge ideas in that show. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, the depiction of interracial romance without batting an eye, right. women who are in positions of authority. Uh, oh the, wow. the, uh, the entire moon base was largely staffed by a female crew that mm-hmm. commanded by a woman. You know, okay. things that you know, this was 1972. This was this was you know just a few years after NBC almost didn't let Gene Roddenberry have a woman, much less a black woman even sit on the bridge of the Enterprise. Wow. And at in in UFO, you yeah. actually have moon base commanded by women. Yeah. And all commands. So yeah, some cool stuff there. The the, the spaceships there were you know, of course the UFOs, uh yep. that there were nice spinny alien things that sure. uh uh, and you had these lovely, uh, moon base interceptors that would launch off of, uh, it, this is the Jerry Anderson thing. You had these, these craters that would slide open little openings and, and elevators would lift them up into the craters and they would lift <laughs> off from there and launch little nuclear missiles off their tip and then fly back because they were really one shot things. That oh, fair like, enough. You know, need guys to go get on a Saturday re- night, you know, it, needed to be reloaded. It needed to be reloaded. Oh, yeah. I see what you did there. The factory okay. period was, was, you know, at least six <laughs> hours, I think for them. So, um, Yes. The, uh, uh, but my favorite, and that wasn't technically a spaceship, it was a submarine. It was called Skydiver. And it was okay. a beautiful sub, and, but it would like tilt up and its nose cone would launch off underwater and burst out of the water and become a little jet fighter that would then shoot oh, cool. down out of the sky. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah, that's good times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's, that's my honorary, uh, spaceship. I right, right. I'll out of the, stay on, but on from the, the water. But yes. from the water. Yeah. 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 But all ships can be kind of cool. I mean, oh, yeah. all the, I mean, whether, and subs are just like spaceships underwater, honestly. You they know? really are. I mean, it's all, it's really, we've had more subs than we've had spaceships. Yeah. And so that's where, that's where people who make spaceships really get to use their real artistic yeah. uh, chops. But then by the time we get to the late seventies, now things start changing and, and it becomes Is the it? glory day for spaceships again. Now, now again, the first thing I'm going to reference though, you won't think of, it's actually not that movie franchise. That? We're coming to that, but not Okay, because that. that's the only thing before I know about that, the 70s. Before that, saying of great significance, 
Jerry Anderson's next TV series, now surviving a full two seasons, <laughs> Space 1999. Oh, weird. I do remember that. Yeah. Now, this this was a little further casting. The idea, the plot of that was basically that the nuclear waste dump that we have on the moon, because, of course, we were going to have an entire lunar colony by 1999, right. and mm-hmm. that's where we would ship all our nuclear waste, somehow ignites and becomes like a big jet engine that propels the moon out of Earth's orbit, rocketing it through space and into a new solar system every week. And wow. we won't focus. That only lasted two seasons? It only lasted two seasons. I can't say I'm shocked. Yeah. Wow, the, that guy knows how to pitch a show, though, doesn't he? It does. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, what pretty crazy ambitious. The, so it's the... I did, Space 1999 was about the moon that would go into a new solar system every, every episode? Week. Yeah, pretty much. Holy... There's a... Yeah, I think we watched Doctor Who during that time. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. It, it was. Well, of course, Doctor Who was on this whole period too. Right, right. But that was just a, that was just a phone booth. Yeah. So anyway, so (laughs) I get that. A a very cool phone booth, you guys. But uh, Space 1999, one of the things they really focused on were these beautiful, you know, uh, traditional visual effects, uh, uh, just classic in-camera stuff. Okay. They would literally hang things from wires and film them against uh, uh, just black backgrounds and then double expose stars in to get the backgrounds in. And so if you watch like the, the shots from the show, you'll actually notice like if the, uh, if the ships were flying in a particular path, you would notice there would be stars above and below that path, but not actually in it because right. they couldn't afford complex optical printing. They, right. they just had to like double expose like, right. the stars and hope, onto and hope it, that it, and every it, now and then you actually see it fly over a star and you sort of, it's, you suddenly realize it's transparent. It's right. Closely. Yeah. But space 1999 is important because it built on the tradition of 2001 and it gave what I think is one of my favorite ships of all time. You know, okay, we've already yeah. hit the Enterprise, which is yep. definitely my favorite capital ship of Starship of all time. Fair Space enough. Space 1999 gave me the, I think, the still today, the most, one of the most beautiful transport vessels of all time. The Eagle. Eagle okay. Transporter. It was this modular uh, ship that would be their, sort of their workhorse ship on the moon. Okay. It had a nice little, uh, uh, rounded forward module, pod for the, module for the, uh, the, the crew or the, the, the pilot. Okay. Then you had this, um, nice little four landing legs and then you had this, this crew module that was detachable and they could swap in mission modules for different purposes. You could, your Eagles could ha- had a, had one module for transporting nuclear waste to the dump site, huh. had another module for carrying, uh, uh, uh people, carrying or, people. Yeah. Uh, they actually had a specially painted module for VIPs. They, they, oh. they got, they got an orange module, right. another one for Probably rescue ex- purposes that had red stripes on it. Had another one that was like an extra large area that had like sensors. In Is the- there an action figure of that? Because that they're they're missing out on. Oh a well, series. there was there was a there was British Dinky Toys back in the seventies made made various because versions to of have them. swappable. Like, and they, and talk about expansion. Since options. then, there's a company that, uh, uh, in the last 10 years made, like, basically all the variants of the Eagle, and I have them all in my living room, and all the modules that, sure. that it was like, it's just, it, it's this thing that you look at, it's a thing of beauty. I actually have, like, a 22 inch model in my living room that's <laughs> studio scale for one of the, uh, sh- uh shooting modules. Oh, cool. They, they did. It was like, just, but I, I, it's still, you look at this today after all these years, and you think, yeah, that would fly. <laughs> oh, cool. It has this just elegant, but beautiful, like, utility to it. The modularity, yeah. very nice touch. So, and a nice yeah. touch. Wow. And so that, that tied us over until we finally got to... Dun, dun, dun. Or dun, 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 Star Wars. Star Wars. I saw that movie. Yeah. That was one of the... It 
It's, it, it's got legs. It turned a profit. I think it turned a profit. Yeah. I don't, I'm not gonna, we're recording this a week before it comes out, just so you know. Oh, and, yes. And neither right. of us have cancer. So we have not seen it. Yeah. And, um, I know that I'm not gonna see it opening night, uh, just because I think it'll still be out, uh, when I come home. Yeah. I, I'm actually, I, I, I couldn't get my, my shit together and get my tickets, you know. Oh, is it sold out? Two and a half months in advance for opening night. So yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, we'll, all right. Uh, have to, uh, it'll all work out. I think it'll still be airing. Yeah. Um, so. But, but Star Wars brought a bunch of new a design lot elements of different. to the thing. Well, first of all, it continues that tradition, the 2001 tradition of sort of the kit bash design of yeah, yeah, lots of little nerbly bits all over yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, raid the, raid the, the model. Like that giant, stores. the pointy one? Right. The pointy one, the, the Star Destroyer, you know, wedge shaped, giant, massive ship. But yeah. if you look at it, there's like this incredible detail at all levels. These are, these beautiful Beautiful, like ten foot long models they would build, and they would just paste little bits of uh, anything they could pull out of model kit boxes, yeah, yeah. and it would have this incredible texture. Uh, but a couple things that Star Wars brought, in addition to that tradition, continuing it, was the introduction of fighter craft into sci-fi because we had never really seen oh short range fighter short range, you know, just small single it was pilot just vessels giant vessels in, that like, would shoot at each other, right. Like like ships like broadside broadsiding yeah, yeah you know start there was nothing more boring than a Star Trek original <laughs> series ship battle it's true it was pretty lame yeah just it was not and a, fire and you sort of had right, the same it was Star fine Trek, right? but yeah. there better be some dialogue right because right. it's just about a shaking chairs yes and then but you know Lucas was highly inspired by World War II dogfighting sequences and so he wanted to put that into space and right. so uh, so that brought up the idea of the the, the, the individual fighters and. Swarms of them in these, you know, big action sequences. It was truly unlike anything we'd seen at that point. Yeah, just X fighters and 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 X wings, X Y wings versus mm. the Tie fighters. My 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 Star Wars is here's here's what I will admit about Star Wars, you guys. I love it. I don't know the names of all the toys, so I don't know the names of all the robots. I don't know the names of all the ships. Uh, I get to just like it and uh, safe space. So there you it's go. Safe space. No, you you get you absolutely yeah. get to do that. But but the the X wing. Those were so, my favorites. So the X-Wing brought yet another innovation we hadn't really seen in, in uh, movies before. And this is the idea of moving parts on yeah. ships. Oh, I right, mean, we've seen they, maybe little rotating, cause, like, cause, like uh, um, uh, you know, radar towers and things. Right. But the X-Wing, everyone like just freaked out when they're flying on their attack vector. And all of a sudden, their wings opened up into right. an attack configuration. Yeah. And that was like this whole new thing. We just... Didn't because see e- this before. and and then each each spike has it's like flying a dragonfly or flying yeah, like mean, a, you know, a mosquito turbo laser on each wing. So yeah, you have four turbo. They alternate back and forth, but that added this whole new kind of coolness. Like, oh yeah, they can actually move around. Interestingly, not something that got picked up again for a long time. Basically, yeah. that that was like they they they. they, they they staked out that space, but it wasn't for another like twenty years before we really started to see a return to that. Other people concept. using it, yeah, okay, yeah. So, and then Millennium uh, Falcon, of course. And then the Millennium Falcon, again, sort of beautiful, just stunningly beautiful kitbash design. Yeah. But Millennium Falcon brought yet another interesting element to it, and this is this idea of this integrated set design that matches the ship design, so that when you look at the set and then you look at the ship, you go, "Oh, I know where that corridor is." And, you know, like Star Trek did that a little bit in the sense that the bridge was at the top. And so yeah. you, you sort of saw that and that was supposed to be where the bridge is. And a couple shots let you peek in the window at the top of the bridge. And yeah. kind of clumsy, but they, they started to do that. Star Wars, you know, the Millennium Falcon, like that little corridor you run through to get to the cockpit. It's actually yeah. a corridor. Or it's a tube. On it the looks model. like, yeah. And so the idea that, oh, you know, we can actually design our ships and with our 
sets and make it so that they all fit together. And so everybody has a real sense of how their toy would or how it would actually look. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's cool. And then uh, that tradition actually was picked up a couple of years later when, of course, Star Trek finally returned after uh, you know a long hiatus in Star Trek motion picture. Right. And uh, Doug Trumbull again carrying through from uh, uh, taking actually taking over the visual effects and really wanting to lovingly again show these massive scale ships. Uh, working with the designer Andy Probert, who did the uh, redesign of the Enterprise, seeing that beautiful Matt Jeffries look from the the late 60s, mm-hmm. but needing to scale it up at this incredible resolution <laughs> to fit on a movie screen. Okay. And so that actually is is the one I point out as my favorite Enterprise, is that redesign that came out in Star Trek The Motion Picture. So it took all of the elements, all the design, all the proportions from the original show, yeah. but just gave it this extra polish and elegance and beauty to it. And I don't know that I've seen The Motion Picture again. Well, it's the same design that shows up in all of the uh, Kirk, uh, the Kirk, Kirk Spock movies. So okay. all through Star Trek VI, you see that design over okay. and over again. It's yeah. that same one. Okay. Instead of tubes for nacelles, they're actually sort of flattened. Okay. Uh, you know, the, and, but the other thing is um, they worked really hard again on the set design to make those sets fit into areas of the ship. And, you know, window designs that were mimicked on the inside and outside. Yeah. Things you didn't fully appreciate till they actually remastered that in digitally in the, the, like in the 15 90s years or, ago, yeah. you know, the late 90s, where they sort of finished some of the visual effects they didn't do. And really, you got that sense of geography on the ship when you look out a window and you see a nacelle out there. Some yeah. really nice things. Yeah. So, those were really cool. And the, uh, yeah, so it was just a beautiful switch to that. And then, of course, on the heels of that, we get Battlestar Galactica, you know, sci-fi oh, yeah. on TV again. That was like the late 70s. The uh, old Battlestar Galactica. The old Battlestar, right. And again, the beautiful giant Battlestar, huge kind of kitbash design, uh, lovely structure, lots of fiddly detail. Yeah. But then bringing the fighter jets, but then into TV mode instead of in movie mode. And so it was really our first sort of TV space battle things. They look like sparrows, didn't they? The, the, the jets on, yeah, on the, Battlestar? Yeah, the vipers, actually. They were they're called. vipers? Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, and sort of... Uh, uh, but they were, the, the wings were kind of closer. Yeah, and stubby kinda... little sh- close-in wings, yeah. right. You know, nice tight jets. But again, it had a nice utilitarian it, kind they of... They look like jets. Jet look to it, Super yeah. Jets, yeah, but and clearly capable of atmospheric and right. space. You space know, so they were kind of splitting the difference there. That's what you want. So yeah, uh, Cylons, our uh, uh, robotic overlords, right? Who um, were not Daleks. Uh, the Cylons. What did they look like? Were they tall robot guys? Silver, silvery robot with a big red eye. Oh, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> Robotic by your command, which for the life of me sounded like the warnings, audio warnings you got at the uh, Atlanta airport for like at least 20 years, <laughs> uh, which sadly I think have turned to a more human sound at this point. But yeah, it was really the same kind of sound. <laughs> and uh, the, the big silent base stars, which are sort of big flying saucery things, but you know, but they were, they were bases or? And, uh, giant space bases, you know. Okay. And, you know, they, the, and the Battlestar Galactic, again, a giant ship, you know, capable of, you know, probably thousands of people could fit in, in, you know, whole landing bays, you know, they, they had like, you know, a, a modern day aircraft carrier has one giant surface and that's where the things land. On the Battlestar, the landing bays were just small parts of the whole ship, so. Oh, wow. And they were all the size of, each of those or yeah, whatever. Like, so yeah, neat little launching, shooting out the side of the landing bay. Yeah, little so, tubes. Little tubes to shot out to... of. Yeah, so mm-hmm. a lot of cool designs there. Oh, but I did, one other thing I left out of the 70s though before, before we forget, it actually fits right in with Star Wars is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, we're back to saucers. We're back to saucers, but not 
saucers. They, Close Encounters changed our view of UFOs and alien UFOs from just these solid, shiny saucers to ships built out of light. Uh, they, they actually would build all these fanciful designs and uh, illuminate them with colored lights, and they actually shot them in smoky rooms, so you got all this beautiful light filtering streaming out. Oh, and wow. then, um, so all of the ships, you never even got a good look. All you saw yeah. was the glow from them. And then, then of course, the final mothership, again, one of the most beautifully, artfully beautiful designs of ships in, in science fiction shows up. And it's this mix of this nerbly, super detailed, spire covered, you know, sort of inspired by like, like Palace Verdes and the, 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 the oil refineries at night. Okay. Uh, that area, you know, South Bay and, and with, with all the light filtering out for the smoky. And so it's a mixture of just the, the how it looks with light and structure. Intertwined. Yeah. Again, gave us another beautiful, beautiful motif that. Um, so does it look sort of like I can't even picture it? Is it like a cityscape kind of? Yeah. Thing? So there's a, one, there's a giant dome on one side. Okay. And then in, around underneath the dome, there are like spires sticking out in all directions radially with like lights at the end of the spires. Oh, okay. And under that middle section, there are a series of uh, like tubes sticking, blue tubes lit from the inside, light shining out. And so just, it really is, if you go by like a giant oil refinery, it has that, that <laughs> look to it. It's cool. quite well inspired. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, and that was in the 70s as well, right? Close yeah. Encounters? That was in the 70s as well, yeah. Okay. What about that shark in Jaws? Is that a spaceship? That is not. It's animatronic, but it's not a spaceship. Right. It did have right. moving parts, though. It did have moving parts. Before I saw the, it on the, the, on the tour. Even. Yeah. even before the... Because I, the, it was broken, and it was backing up. And as we all know, sharks can't go backwards. And, and then the phone rang, so uh, Andy's just going to hang up on it. Good for him. And uh, Priorities, man. Priorities. priorities. That's uh, It's a classic. So... So that brings us to the 80s. To the 80s. Yeah. And the 80s saw some interesting things. For instance, a uh, one movie way ahead of its time, really probably the most significant change in, in, in ship design and ship realization in movies, started in the 80s <laughs> but really didn't take hold for another decade. Okay. And that was the movie The Last Starfighter. Oh, and 1982 or 83, right? Yeah, yeah, the uh so early mid 80s. I own the Last Starfighter and I have watched it because of Robert Preston. Oh yeah, right. That's uh, that's why you want to watch the Last Starfighter. But the Last Starfighter is noteworthy because that was the first ever use of a CG computer generated model ship as the way of rendering the visual effects in the movie. Oh. And uh and it was a triangle Stupidly ship. Stupidly primitive by modern standards. Like, sure. Right, right. It first time. Computery. Yeah. But it was the first time. And yeah. it established an ability to show things like, you know, huge arrays of things spread out through space, which you can compute mathematically, but you'd never be able to build models of. Right. And so, you know, they were showing, uh, giving us a hint of what was going to come, but it really did take the technology like a decade to catch up to our desires of what we wanted to show. A classic. It's a classic, a classic. thing with, with art, just getting a little bit ahead of what uh, what can be really done. Exactly, exactly. Was Red Dwarf in the 80s? Uh, Red Dwarf, I think, was in the 80s, yes. The the, the British series. Yeah, the British the, series that yeah, had... And continued through the 90s. And I don't think they ever kinda... showed the outside of that ship, though. They did, actually. It was oh, in did the they? Credits. And it, just this big, monstrous red ship. Yeah, because the opening credits, it shows them like, trying to 
whitewash or uh, clean the uh, right around the paint job where it says red dwarf and then the camera like pulls back and it reveals oh, and then it's a giant. Yes. Okay. I remember city in space kind of thing. Right. Cause a red dwarf is an actual term. Is it not? Isn't it a star? It's a type of star. There yeah. we go. I'll be over here knowing some science, but not enough. Exactly. So that'll be fine. Then, uh, of course, the another another big design thing that we is, uh, sort of really saw from the first times in the '80s was uh, in the movie The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai: Beyond the Eighth Dimension. Oh, and what was that ship like? So that was when the Red Electroids from the eighth, <laughs> ninth dimension. Yeah, I forget one of the <laughs> higher dimensional species. Sure. Uh, the ship they built was like organic. It was gooey. It was sloppy. It was wet. It was grown. Oh. And uh, it, the design of the ship is actually based very much on the design of uh, uh, a seashell, a particular spiky conch shell kind of creature. I don't know the exact species. But yeah. I actually happen to have one at An- home. An anemone, and, and, maybe? Uh, no, no. It's just like the classic like spirally shell thing. But oh, okay. it's like you actually look at it and you realize they totally took that and they just added more curves and things and stuck a couple engines in back. And they, they gave a very <laughs> organic, mushy Kind of spaceship. And, and it wasn't, but it wasn't a mushy, was it an alive? It was alive, yeah. it was The Bungaroo Banzai spaceship was alive? Yeah, it was clearly a, the idea of a, you know, a grown organism that was capable of space flight rather than- That people could fly in. That people could fly in. Huh. Yeah. How did it work? Uh, I don't they, remember They never that. went into that level of detail. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. There was no magical explanation. Yeah, it was It was not necessary. It was it, not necessary. It, 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 was, it was, was clearly uh, some sort of uh, symbiotic relationship between them and their spaceship. It was just weird and alien and allowed to do it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. What was next? And, uh, of course, then what really happened and really hit at the end <laughs> of the 80s, Star <laughs> yeah. Trek, The Next Generation. Yeah, yeah. And so now we finally move into a weekly return to Star Trek and mm-hmm. a redesign of the Enterprise, uh, casting it forward in time, another 75 years or so. And again, Andy Probert, who did the same design from the original uh, uh, refit Enterprise yeah. the movies, did the design of the Enterprise D. We actually skipped, you know, A, B, C, and then we got to the D. Right, uh, so that they could go do prequels if they needed to. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, again, continued this tradition of the saucer and this very smooth, curvy contoury shape to it's it. It's because it's a more peaceful time. It's a more peaceful time. And a it's much things- larger vessel, a thousand, over a thousand people on, right. a city in space kind mm-hmm. of idea. Uh, a, a much flatter design. It was also moved towards, uh, the, the, you know, the original, the original Enterprise has a lot of height to it. It was tall. Of, it was tall. And we start to see this idea of these capital ships being squashed and becoming much flatter, mm-hmm. uh, starting in the late eighties. And the tradition that really carries through to today, uh, through Star Trek in particular. Which feels aerodynamic in a place that doesn't need to be, but yeah. it does, it does still look cool. But I think it speaks, uh, I always liked this idea of these smooth, elegant, complex curvature shapes in Star Trek because I thought it spoke to a society that designed ships not just to function well, but to look beautiful, that aesthetic is actually as important as functionality, or at least, you and know, it makes a, sense in their society process. because, and, yeah, an ideal uh, society, one where it's really living in a virtual paradise, largely, right? You know, why not make your day-to-day technology also pleasurable, right? Very beautiful. I, I, I like to think that Starfleet design actually came, you know, from a lineage that you can trace back to Johnny Ives and Apple. You know, <laughs> fair enough. Just because. That's uh, Robert Hurt, by the way. Robert Hurt, pro Apple uh, for many years. You were <laughs> well, on the ground floor. It, the entire of Apple, bridge you? of the Enterprise D is was in giant iPads. You know, right? It is all like iPads. These digital touch screens, right? You know, so it's a. 
I'd l- let me remind people, by the way, it's at Astro Rob on Twitter and uh, Astronomy Viz, V-I-Z, dot WordPress or on WordPress. And then AstroPix dot cool for real space pictures. AstroPix dot cool. P-I-X. Yep. Okay. So we're, we're next generation, which I always called next Trek. Uh, but other people call TNG, TNG. now. TNG, yeah, it's, it's yeah. You got to get the the original series is TOS, the original right. series, the animated series that was in the seventies. Oh, uh, actually, right. I, I didn't touch on that, but you know there was an anime that's TAS, right? Because it was animated. TNG, right? So, yeah. And then of course coming up after TNG was DS Nine, Deep Space Nine, DS Nine. So yeah, we really liked those three letter acronyms for our Star Trek. Sure, and next Trek. Which I will call until I die, because uh, it was the next trek. Is what is that's what we called it in my family, and uh, and so we we would watch it every Sunday night. We would like the power of the sun. We were all drawn to the television, and DS Nine was harder for me because they never left anywhere. Well, they did eventually. They, Event- got, they well, got their beautiful little Defiant. That's it. The Defiant. That yeah, that little fist of a of a spaceship. Yeah. That uh, went out and punched people in the face. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> But TNG is responsible, and the extended, you know, from TNG to DS9 to Voyager, uh, one of the things that I, I have to comment there is, one of the things it brought was simply, and now I, I switch to the, the, the visual aids I brought, which sadly right. those listening cannot actually uh, see. <laughs> oh, Andy's going to take pictures, but you don't have to take them now. There is a... Uh, there's We're a, not live, but I appreciate it. The sheer volume of ship design that occurred because of the Star Trek series the hell? is what? is almost uns- uh, unspeakable. I, I hold you, before Jackie and Andy yes. a collection of magazine numbered magazines up to fifty five currently. This is the uh, the Eagle Moss Starship collection. Uh, every fortnight, <laughs> if you're British, every fortnight, uh, every two weeks, every two weeks, you get, get a, a magazine and a model of that ship. So I have been a, subscribed. It's a Star to Trek. It's a Star model. Trek model ship collecting. Monthly. Magazine monthly that comes yeah. twice a month. Well, actually, once a month I get two. Once a month you get two. And how long have you been getting these? I, I signed up at the Star Trek Vegas convention about two and a half years ago. Okay, okay. So, I so know, not this the is last now thirty over years ago. My but dining room table. This that, is where my dorkdom really comes out. I'm admitting. It's, can I have one copy? Hey, just just, just take, to hold. Take, just yeah, take an entire look, stack look, of them. Take a stack, right? Uh, hello, so, America Rangers. We are deep in the dark forest right deep. now, and it is a beautiful thing. Eagle Moss Collections presents Star Trek, the official Starships collection. And this is a Vulcan Dekir type Dekir? Cruiser, yes. That was from actually Star Trek Enterprise when they uh, showed us some of the beautiful, lovely Vulcan designs. The art on this is amazing. And, uh, you know, and so in addition to each month getting like, uh, and I swear I'm not being paid to represent them. I'm just saying this is a really (laughs) dorky thing that I do. Yes. Uh, that, you know, you get a, a, not only a model, but you get a magazine that tells you like how to design. You you see the design process that went into many of the, uh, oh, the model's already made for you, thank God, because I, oh, you don't have to make them all. Yeah, I, no. How big are the models? Uh, they're like three, three, four inches across. Oh, so they're small. They're small. They're smallish, but then you can display them. But I already have fifty-five, and it's still coming. Right, and they're still coming. Really, there's a there's a Voyager. There's a USS Voyager. Yeah. There's an IKS Negvar Klingon. Oh, look at the paint job on yeah. that. So and what, that's the funniest the thing, thing is, you can't see a paint job in space. Yeah. Anyway, but, but that, but interestingly, when you flip through this and you look, this is another thing that, that Next Generation brought. Because up to this point, 
pretty much every time you saw spaceships in movies, spaceships are gray. Yeah. Spaceships are made out of metal. Metal is gray. Yeah. Maybe kind of white. Maybe a little bit of color splashed on, like in Star Wars, a little bit of red marking. Yeah. Star Trek, actually, in its design, because they started introducing a lot of ships and a lot of species, and you had to be able to tell the difference between them. Oh, right. They actually brought this idea of color into the design process. Yeah. That, um, so they began adopting things like Klingon ships always had a green tint to them. You know, the Federation ships stood with the, uh, the, the sort of the, the white, straight. the gray white yeah. appearance. Uh, then, um, we had Romulan ships. They actually had a slightly different palette of green that attached to them. Okay. Ferengi ships had a kind of, um, uh, orange tone to them. Okay. So, so Star Trek, when, with the be- beginning of Star Trek, Next Generation, and, and through the franchise, right, each species sort of developed its own color palette, and it, it just made it much easier to tell the difference from one ship to another. It really right. brought, like, color as a differentiating factor on yeah. ship design as well. Uh, the other thing that they brought in was the idea of lighting, integrated lighting into the ships. I mean, this, you saw this a little bit in like the motion picture, but, but, uh, and some of the subsequent movies, but the idea that almost every ship that shows up in this show has glowy engine bits that, that, that shine so cool. through and light is part of that design. Yeah. That kind of pulls again a little bit of that, that, uh, close encounters thing. That okay. Let's incorporate light and glow into these things. Right. And so. A Vulcan Surak class, which has a circle and then yeah, the Vul- essentially like a phaser coming out of it. Well, that's the whole body of the ship. The, yeah. the Vulcan ships are cool because instead of having two warp nacelles, they have a ring. And the warp comes out of the oh, ring. Oh, so all right. It's, it's when, and, and that's the science, magical science on that thing. Yeah. Right. And so while we're getting this bounty of, you know, dozens upon dozens of ships out of the Star Trek franchise, then we also get into the other TV franchise near and dear to my heart's which is Babylon 5. Ah, Babylon 5, which uh, Tamara Boyd, who I used to work with, uh, used to just be like, it's better than Star Trek. I don't yeah. think you understand. Star- uh, I never did get marvelous. to see. I never did get to see okay, Babylon Okay, there, there I will harangue you. Yes. Babylon 5 is <laughs> we really, can get in it was transformative. We might have to watch that. Andy would yeah. like us to now watch that. Five-year story arc that was three. planned in advance. The first three Four. seasons. Well, yeah, are- yeah, i got to go through the fourth. I mean... <laughs> You don't Robert know what happened. Would, you don't get to the ending if you don't go to the fourth. The fifth is the one people sometimes are willing to bail on. But Babylon Five. Now, what did their what did their so ships look like? Babylon Five was the first TV show to go whole hog, nothing but computer graphics. There were no models for the show. Okay, Star Trek actually adopted this later, and it mm-hmm. sort of infiltrated and eventually it took over. But with Babylon Five from day one. Full CG. Okay. And it uh, gave them the ability. And what on, year was that? Was that 90s? That started in the 90s. Like, uh, 93, I think, was when the pilot aired. And, like, January of 93. It was and basically it went through, it was almost the to the end of the 90s. Deep Space Nine premiered, actually. It was okay. the, the pilot of Babylon 5 came on the first season of Deep Space Nine. Uh, also on a station. Carrie Dobro was my, uh, uh, was my acting coach for a year. And Carrie Dobro was awesome. On Babylon uh, 5. Uh, she yeah. was also hilarious. She's oh. a very, very funny woman. I and, uh, it. and I actually in, in life think, uh, we sh- should have become friends. But, uh, I'm sure she has a life to lead. Anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> it didn't happen. But what Babylon 5 brought us was huge fleets of ships. All, oh, just all fleets? Because they could? Yeah, in the, in the pilot. Like, things you would never have seen on television before. And it gave it... The other thing it brought, because these were all computer modeled, it brought a lot more color and patterns and markings onto ship design that we'd never seen before. Because now you just sort of call up textured but, surfaces and things and you have all sorts of paneling and you don't have to build it, right? You just have to paint things. So, right. like, the idea of, like, really colorful markings all over the ship. Uh, we'd never seen... A lot of that in the past. But and did they use it like Star Trek did, where it was different 
uh, yeah, kinds of species. Yeah, for each species had its species. own sort of color palette and patterns and designs. So you could tell the difference. And of course, what as a model maker, when I do make models, mm-hmm. what that brought to me was a extra level of nightmarish turmoil and pain I have to go through (laughs) because all of a sudden I couldn't just paint the model a color and be done. No, this has this fractal noise pattern. It's textured. It's all (laughs) over. I I once spent an entire weekend from like 6 p.m. on a Friday night to like 9 p.m. on a Sunday night (laughs) just painting up my model of the White Star, which was this beautiful, elegant, swoopy, organic ship that had this complex blue and gray, soft, airbrushy structure that was perfectly symmetric, semi-organic design. Like, yeah, that, that, was, that should have just been white because it was yeah, called the white was, star. But it's part of what was beautiful was was that patterning. But yes, that bring this whole ability. Anything you could paint in Photoshop, you could have on the surface of the ship cleanly. Okay. So that was that was that whole era of right. ship design. Right. And so we're still in the nineties. Is that were there like is that when Men in Black came out or Independence Day or any of that? Yeah, Independence Day. When did Independence Day came out? That, I, I jotted that down. Because I think somewhere. that was 99. Yeah, that was in the 90s, right? Yeah. And it was, and it was flying saucers again. And it was flying saucers again, but yeah. like 10 mile wide flying saucers. Right, right, a gigantoid. Very detailed, nearly, you know. That could was, also be run by a Mac. That could also be uh, taken down by a Mac. By taken down by a yeah, Mac, the mothership. Much. Yeah, you just upload a virus. Jeff so, Goldblum is very powerful. A lot of yeah. people don't know. Yeah, no, no. So that was a, uh, you know, and we also got like ships and, you know, TV shows like Space Above and Beyond, only one for one season. But is that, kind of, is that Space Marines? Space Marines, yeah. Yeah, Space Above and Beyond. Marines. They were very, I always wanted that to do better. And then it yeah. went away, but it only lasts like four or five episodes. Yeah. But there were probably 12. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was like a single season. And then uh, like right at the end of the 90s, we got Farscape on Sci-Fi Channel. Right, which I've seen Muppet a half a dozen and, of those, and I need to see more of those. And Farscape's wonderful, and it introduced uh, – it finally brought us back to the idea of the organic spaceship, uh, the, uh, the the ship named Moya. Uh, is a, and it a was a character. Creature. As a character. It, That's you, right. you actually interact. You, uh, uh, you had a ship that was an intelligent – uh, organic creature. Uh, you had a pilot that was sort of biologically grafted into the ship, and your only way of communicating with the ship was through the pilot character, the alien, who's basically his species. They right. give up their independence to basically merge biologically with them. Right. And so it's very lovely when you have a show where, when you know, it's one thing to go up to the console and say, "Set in a course for Solaris Seven mm-hmm. versus having to have an argument. With the pilot thing, I want to go here. Well, Moya doesn't really want to go there. Well, we really do, and it's important. Well, she actually wants going to head this other direction. No, I mean, come on. Mm-hmm, you actually mm-hmm. have to argue and negotiate with your ship. I mean, that, right. that, that adds That's a, a lot that, of that does add, add, add a nice level to the, uh, yeah. to, to, to the travel. So, uh, so yeah, so finally back to organic designs, we start to see more and more of. Then we're up to the 2000s. Okay. And then the next big thing that happened to spaceships in the 2000s comes like really in this big lump of movies that kind of all hit at the same time. And this would be like, uh, Cowboys and Aliens, uh, Battle Los Angeles, Battleship, uh, John Carter. And the thing that we wow. s- happened there. Again, what did I see? Did I see any of those? There. Well, John Carter's we're seeing. They're, okay. They're, <laughs> okay. You know, uh, I saw Cowboys and Aliens and, aliens and I, then I think, yeah, maybe one other. All right. But here's the era where basically at this point everyone knows how to do solid ships. It's easy, it's simple, but you know, we're doing now uh you know, CG is really into character animation and complex characters that are actually you know, golems and things oh, to right. interact with, right? So to carry this idea of character animation to the ships, it introduced the idea of articulated ships. So this is basically picking up where some X-Wings really started us, the idea that ships could move around a little bit and change yeah, yeah. their shape. Uh you know, continued Serenity. a little bit in the Star Wars. 
you know, Serenity, uh, uh, you know, rotating engines and things. But even more, when you get to movies like like Cowboys and Aliens, where it's not just like one little pivot thing, but whole complex armatures of uh, overlapping plates and things that shift, literally hundreds of moving parts. Oh. I mean, this is sort of the era after, right when we get Transformers and the idea of these really complex mechanical systems oh, interact. Okay. Yeah. That design gets carried over into ship design. And now all of a sudden... To be really cool, the ships actually have to have like complex articulation and uh, right, and they can armor themselves or something. Armor themselves, like all of a sudden, and then they cover themselves, and you're like, oh wow, that is CGI, right? Though, (laughs) but 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 you know, just appearing, right? That's kind of '90s stuff, right? Now it has to actually animate and slide into position. You have to have like this, and you get to see it or something. Okay, and and then this is a really design style that really is continuing on to today, and it's uh, even like you know, like last year, Jupiter Ascending, um, awful movie. Beautiful art design. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the idea of taking it even further where it's a technology, a very advanced technology they're rendering in their ships, but where the articulations are actually independently floating elements that are somehow sus- tied together through complex force fields rather okay. than being physically attached. Will you go but see a movie complex. just c- if it has spaceships in it? Oh, hell yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, oh, I should yeah. have seen that coming. I'm so sorry. No, it's, um, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I'm perfectly capable of turning off what all the yappy people are saying about any just, movie and just about any movie and just sit back. If there is beautiful art design and okay. direction and, and visual effects, I feel it's a, it's it's often um, it's a different movie. It's a different movie. It's, <laughs> it's not necessarily the one the the writer or the director intended, but right. it's it's worth seeing. And I feel like visual effects gets a very bad rap for ruining. I mean, people blame it for ruining movies. I think what people don't really understand is. Visual effects doesn't ruin movies, you know. Uh, visual effects actually take something that has no redeeming value whatsoever and turns it into something that you can actually sit back and like enjoy. It's pretty. And right. At least it gave you something to enjoy can, about. But it. can can crummy visual effects ruin a movie? Crummy visual effects can de- certainly detract from your enjoyment of the movie. Right. But, but the thing is, if the movie is really really good. Then it can rise it above doesn't even the matter whether effects. the effects are good. Right, it rises above. You you carry along. You enjoy but, it and, for, but you're, the, because you're drawn into it. And the opposite of that, uh, so where the visual effects are amazing, but the the storyline or the 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 dialogue is not great, it can help it make it pa- more palatable. It make it more palatable, but it won't make it a good movie. Right. But, but <laughs> fair enough. I feel like you. I, I always want to emphasize that even if the movie is bad, say through something that the act the, the writers had done yeah. or that the way the director chose to bring it don't let that make you hate what might be a beautiful work of of uh, art created yeah. by the visual effects right there, there's right? still good work going there's on still there. good work it can still be beautiful it can still transport you visually to a new world and and don't blame the visual effects <laughs> yeah yeah for right. the writing or the, uh, right. the direction right the visual effects were as good as they possibly could be and the, the writing and the direction of the movie were just bad yeah so yeah. that's not the problem of the visual effects Fair enough. So, uh, so this basically takes us up to, uh, I guess, the modern era and, and sort of where we are in chip design. I, I think the thing that we've seen a, a kind of resurgence in very recently in film, again, you can kind of point back to 2001, but this, uh, we have this, the spate of films now that are out where we're really focused back on realistic designs, like what would actually work in a physics sense. And you look at, say, the art design in a movie like Interstellar. Okay. Where they built these ships to, you know, rotating sections. It's, it's, it just meticulously designed as a plausible way of, 
uh, an entry craft, a, a transportation craft would work. Uh, you know, movies like Gravity where the technology actually, you know, they didn't invent anything for gravity, but, mm-hmm. you know, they were using the space shuttle design, the space station design, but again, trying to show weightlessness and, and zero G environments and, and what that okay. was like. We have, uh, you know, a significant return to this w- desire to, you know, render that, that zero G, like yeah. if you don't have a rotating section, then you don't have gravity and how do you interact in the ship and make that work? Um, the, uh, 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 the Martian. Yeah. Incredible, beautiful design of the ships and the environments, but all based on a kind of reality to it. They, they want it to be plausible, at least yeah. in the way it works. Did it, did it seem like some, like, like they had real science that they were trying to, Oh, that absolutely. Did, that Donald it, Glover was, was coming up with. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I think, so, yeah, in the Martian in particular, yeah. I think, you know, they, they struck a really nice balance between designing something that you want it to look beautiful to mm-hmm. engage the audience visually. Yeah. But then when you actually look at how all the pieces work, there's a rotating, big rotating section for the gravity, the, uh, um, the sense of, you know, the timing of, you know, you can't just turn the ship around and fly back to Mars. You actually have to slingshot back around the Earth and go out, right? The, right. the actual attention to how gravitational dynamics work and how you actually have to physically move things around the solar system. It's not just turn and suddenly you're moving in a different direction. You know, that's, right. that, that's kind of, that's, that's the downside of what we carry along from Star Trek. But, but in fact, if you want to push back to, um, uh, uh, again, come back to Babylon 5, which was first in many important ways. Yeah. Babylon 5, had a certain was one of the first times on television they really tried to establish this uh, uh, sense of how physics would really work on the uh, having a big cylindrical station that rotates to create gravity. Some of these beautiful vistas where you sit inside this big cylinder, seeing it curving up above you. Imagery that we later saw in movies like Interstellar, which was one of the first times we've ever seen the inside of a cylindrical habitat since Babylon Five first showed it to us on television. So the cylindrical cylindrical habitat is artificially creating gravity. Yes, by rotating. Okay. That- is that a fees like cuz I once said to your and Andy's mutual friend from uh back in the day, uh Judy Adler who teaches physics at the high school level, AP, no doubt. And uh but she I once said to her, "Have we um can we make gravity? Can we control gravity out in space?" And she just looked at me and uh as did her son, who I believe was 10 at the time. <laughs> and uh she was like, "No, no, not yet. Not yet, Jackie. That's still well, okay. not real." I, let's let's be careful. We can't make gravity. Like we like, cannot generate a gravitational field like in Star right. Trek, like a plate that suddenly you step on it and you stick to it. Right. Right. We can't do that. But we can simulate the effect of gravity through centrifugal centrifugal force. For real. Rotation, for real. And we've okay. been doing that in amusement parks forever, right? You know, uh, but we, we can we, do that we train in space? Astronaut. We train astronauts in simulators that spin them around in a centrifuge to help them experience what, you know, 3Gs of acceleration feel like. Okay. Ship. So, yeah. And we can do that in space. That is totally, utterly doable. Okay. But that, but we haven't figured out how to sort of work it so that we can spin super fast and then get shit done while we're spinning fast. I mean, in theory, we can. I think the reason we haven't done it yet is just it's expensive. You have to build a relatively large space okay. to do this. It, it, you know, if you build the centrifuge and you you try to live in it, you, the other thing you discover if you you know the spinny things like yeah. the part where you're against the wall, and one of the things they tell you is don't move your head around. Yeah, because you know when you'll you, get when, as soon as you bend your head up, you want to throw up. Yeah. Uh, so imagine living in that. Yes. Every time you turn your head, you're ready to puke, right? Right. You, you, you can't build one of these things and have it like 20 feet in diameter and, or 50 feet in diameter. and. Oh, it'd you know, have to be bigger than that so that it wouldn't that. feel 
Like it, it be the size of the earth would help. Yeah. Cause, uh, cause it, it is also your spinning. Your brain would really react to the fact that the, the amount of, you know, kind of simulated gravity is a function of how far, <laughs> how close you are to the wall versus the center. Yeah. And if the diameter is relatively small compared to the different distance between your head and your feet, then the, the differential, like that okay. creates nausea. So that's why you, you would probably, it'd have to be a big space station kind of did thing. Did you read, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet? I, I did not read C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. In the, in the first book, they, uh, they, they get in a spaceship, which is shaped like a ball. And they have control of gravity in the center of the spaceship. They have essentially, like, for some reason, they've controlled gravity. They've created, like, a center of the earth kind of sitch. Mm-hmm. So they walk across the the outside of it. They, that's how that's how their gravity works on the spaceship. They walk on the outside of the it, the the center of the ball. So, like, sometimes they're they're upside down. Okay, well, that and, makes you have to like. That, but that requires gravity creation. Total magical gravity creation yeah. and written in like 1940. So he doesn't have any actual science available to him because yeah. he's an English professor from Oxford. But, anyway, you know, we uh, can forgive shows for having um, magical gravity creation because, let's face it, it's actually fun. really expensive to make people <laughs> pretend to be in zero-G the entire TV series. You know, you have to. Fair enough. So, you know, we have. Uh, Unforeseen uh, site that I did not, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Of course, it would be very expensive to have people be in zero-G all yeah, the time. Yeah. All right. But, um, I, have two, I have two movies to ask you about. Hitchhiker's okay. Guide to the Galaxy. That had a spaceship. Improbability it, drive, I think. The the heart of gold, yes. That the, was it. The infinite improbability drive for for it was uh, in the heart of gold. That's it. For mechanisms for getting your ship from point A to point B, it's one of the most brilliant concepts <laughs> in all of science fiction history. Yeah. The idea of basing it on a, a pure generation of improbability <laughs> and the idea that uh, you you basically you generate a field that creates things that are so improbable that it the likelihood of ending up where you actually want to is so vastly improbable if you've now made the improbable probable that's where you'll be that's just stunningly brilliant <laughs> it's ha- just good writing it's just good writing uh, Douglas Adams you know will, will live with us forever as as a as a genius that he is and then firefly and Firefly. Which we didn't bring up because I, I think that that is a very pretty ship. It is a very pretty ship. It's, it's a mess. Like it looks like a junker. It looks like the Millennium Falcon. Yes. To me. Yes. It has that kind of resonance with me. But, uh, it has, it's noteworthy for having the most, one of the most beautiful examples of integrated set and ship design because the actual set they built for that mm-hmm. absolutely follows the contours. I mean, you can buy replicas of the Serenity that you pop the top off and you actually see all the sets, the, the dining yeah. room, everything. It's all there. The, the little windows in the dining room that look out. It's it's all like and, geographically and it, fit. Even the time. levels? Even the levels in the big Because they slide down. And they yeah, slide down into the big storage bay yep. thing. Yeah, they thought that whole thing through and they, they built it and designed the sets to even, you know, even the sets that they kind of like, you kind of half walk upstairs and there's art and that's falling yeah. kind of the spine of the ship. That's really cool. incredible design, beautiful done, and noteworthy because they were one of the few shows ever to face and stare down the in space you shouldn't hear any noise and say, okay, we're going to do it that way, and they made it work. You always hear the argument, well, it'll be boring if we don't hear sound effects, so we're going to put sound effects in. They nulled the sound every time they were in space, and they used music to create drama. Okay. It was incredibly effective. 
There we go. Yeah. So, so what is the future of space travel on television? Because we are, we are, my friend, at an hour fifteen. No. Oh, all right. Well, well, two things. Let me first jump back. I forgot to mention. My, I told you sure. my favorite starship, which is the Enterprise. Yep. The, the refit. Uh, I told you my favorite transport ship, which would be the Eagle from Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. Right. I did not tell you my favorite fighter ship. Oh, right. Uh, and you people will probably jump to, of course, it's the X Wing. But no, no, I actually have to go to Babylon Five, the Star Fury. The Star Fury. The first, the first space fighter craft we ever saw that showed that you would mount engines that could fire forward and backward. That in order to decelerate, you don't just turn your ship and you go a different direction. Oh, you, you actually mean- have to fire jets in a different direction and slow down and then turn around. And create maneuverability. Yes. So okay. Babylon 5 has the record for being the first show to actually show how a fighter would fire control jackets to kind of tumble around and s- flip around. Yeah mesmerizingly beautiful and actually scientifically accurate. All right. Now some of the aliens, of course, did the swoop thing and that, but, but, it, but they at least did it right <laughs> from the Star Fury. So right. the Star Fury uh, takes, takes a, a position. That's your fighter. My, 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 my that's, your fi- that's your fighter one. Yeah. All right. But the thing to watch in the future, I think, uh, I have just watched the pilot of a new series for sci-fi channel called The Expanse. Okay. Uh, it's based apparently on a series of novels. I'm uh, not sure who the writer was, but it's uh, premiering in December. And I think January, they're going to kind of run through the whole thing. Yeah. And that's set, say, I'm guessing like 200 years in the future where mm-hmm. we've colonized the solar system. But the fact that turning a ship around in this pilot to basically intercept a, uh, a distress call when they were en route to Mars and they have to decide, oh, no, we have to do this. Just turning the ship around, changing course is such a major event that – it's actually a plot point in the story. It's like, oh yeah, they actually. This is this is good. This is a big good they're for them. They're actually really. They're trying to be incredibly plausible. A lot of um, beautiful zero g work in the movie. They're they're trying to show as much of that as they can find feasible. Uh, looking at like plausible colonization scenarios for the asteroids and for uh, for Mars. Right. Lots of geopolitical intrigue. Uh, All spatial, good. Spatiopolitical intrigue, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and New Battlestar Galactica? You didn't mention that either. Is oh, that New Battlestar, again, brilliantly beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Only so many minutes in the day, but exactly. uh, they also did a good job <laughs> of showing reaction control thrusters to maneuver. They, they actually picked up the tradition from the Star Furies. Yeah. And, again, did a beautiful job. Also uh, disconnecting, showing the camera tracking ships, you know, the... The classic Battlestar had the problem of they had to make the Vipers look like they're moving. So you'd be sitting in the cockpit and you'd just see stars streaming outside. It's like, uh, you know. Like Fred no. Flintstone. Yes. <laughs> no, the stars aren't like the lampposts that are, you know, 20 feet away. They're like, you know, a thousand stars. lampposts away and they're stars. And, you know, like you wouldn't see that. So the new Battlestar did this idea of, you know, we're just fixed camera and we're tracking, tracking okay. them against the stars. So you get the motion, but you also yeah. don't break the reality of of the fact that they are not actually flying between the stars. Robert Hurt, you remain fascinating. <laughs> fascinating and awesome. And what, what do you want to talk about next time? Oh, man. Uh, I haven't the thought. dorkdoms, there's rows and rows of them, I'm yes, pretty sure. Yes, Well, you know, honestly, you can just return to some of the cool stuff that's happened in astronomy and space science since then, you know, I mean, like... Fair enough. And if people follow you... The discovery of possible signatures of parallel universes, you know, how... Uh, what? <laughs> Press uh, release next week, <laughs> which will be like two weeks ago by the time this comes out. Exactly. So. <laughs> at Astro Rob on Twitter, Astro, uh, wait, wait, Astronomy Viz, 
on WordPress and astropix.cool uh, in the world of the Internet. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show, Robert. Thanks for having me. It's and always a pleasure. Thanks, Andy, for watching. And you guys know the rules. Take care of each other out there. Bye. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat. <laughs> my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh my god. We, why don't we just call that as the end of the show?